Hello and welcome back to Life, Health, and Healing. I'm your host, Dr. Ted Cole. Today we're going to be talking about allergies. And I've given this a lot of thought, and I'm going to do this actually in two parts. So today we're going to cover part of allergies. Then we're going to cover the second part, which is going to be primarily on the treatment and symptoms of allergies. Today we're going to focus on, well, what is an allergy? How does it affect us, and how can we test for them? You can get a lot of more information at our websites. Visit www.colecenter.com, and at the bottom, you'll find links to all of our other websites. On Facebook, I post things on a pretty regular basis, <laughs> and you can find information there. Again, the Cole Center for Healing, Cincinnati Hyperbarics, and Dr. Vitamins. So let's get into this. First of all, well, what is an allergy? And this definition is kind of self-enclosed, if you will. You'll see what I mean. Because an allergy occurs when a person reacts to something in the environment that typically is harmless to most people. Those substances are then known as allergens. So you'll hear me talk about different terms, one of them being an antigen. So an antigen is any substance that causes your immune system to produce antibodies against it. Okay, so what's an antibody? Antibody is a class of protein. These are called immunoglobulins. They're made by a type of white blood cell, and they're, what they do is they help identify and neutralize anything that's foreign to the immune system. So immunoglobulins are a type of material called glycoprotein, it means they're made of both a protein and a carbohydrate or a sugar. And these are produced by white blood cells. They're a critical part of the immune system, of course, and they have to recognize, and then they bind to antigens and try to either destroy or neutralize them. So that's what we're talking about. And there are a couple different types of immunoglobulins. There are five main classes. You might have heard of some of these. They're IgG, IgM, IgA, IgD, and IgE. So there are four types of allergic reactions, and I'm gonna go through each of these types because later on you're gonna see how this ties into all the testing and treatment in here as well. So the first is called a type one or immediate hypersensitivity, also known as an anaphylactic reactions. These kinds of allergic reactions are systemic or localized Something would be like a hive or a wheel. That kind of reaction would count for this. And it's when, and this gets a little technical, but it's when an antigen links with a membrane-bound IgE antibody. So remember we talked about the IgEs, type of immunoglobulin antibodies. That produces a release of all kinds of different factors which result then in what we know as an anaphylactic reactions. And these kinds of reactions can cause actual tissue, tissue damage. So they can be pretty nasty. And as you know, people can actually die from anaphylactic reactions. So that's a type 1. Type 2 is called a cytotoxic reaction, or another name is antibody-dependent. In this one, the antibody, or allergen, reacts directly with the antigen that's bound to a cell membrane and it then produces cell damage or death through what's called complement activation. Complement is another part of the immune system. 
This is part of what people oftentimes refer to as autoimmune reactions, which means basically you're allergic to yourself. Lots of people have what's called Hashimoto's disease, which is when the immune system is attacking your thyroid. That is an autoimmune reaction. And that's probably one of the most common ones. There are other ones, uh, some of them not as common, like uh, blood transfusion reactions and so on. Now we get to type 3, which is called immune complex reaction. This is when IgG and IgM bind with antigens. They then form an antigen antibody or immune complex. This results also in tissue damage. And this can also be part of an autoimmune disorder. Another one example here would be like lupus. So part of these reactions can have this, what they call complex reactions. Then last but not least, we have type four, which is called cell mediated or delayed hypersensitivity. These are initiated by what are called T lymphocytes. It's another type of white blood cell. And then other types of T cells and white blood cells get involved in this whole process. They then interact with the antigens and this can then produce another chain of reactions. But the key with this is that this reaction takes two to three days or longer after you've come in contact with the antigen or allergen. Lots of chronic infections can cause these kinds of delayed hypersensitivities, including tuberculosis and fungal infections, and also Lyme disease, which we've talked about in a prior podcast here. So the cell-mediated or delayed hypersensitivity, difficult to really test for, because again, it can take anywhere from three days or more to see the effect of something you get exposed to. So that means if you were to eat something for breakfast today, it could be three days later that you react to it. So it's very difficult to pinpoint. So, oh, geez, that thing I ate for breakfast is really what's causing this. Very difficult to pin those down through any kind of like, diary keeping or something like that. People will keep food journals and things. I just find those to not be very helpful. And this is one of those reasons. Also, it takes a boatload of time. Uh, because really, if you're going to do, and this gets into some of our diagnosis, and what's called an elimination diet, Technically, you're for three days living on basically purified water and maybe rice and lamb, that's it. And you can add one type of food every three to four days because it can take that long to see a reaction. That's almost impossible for people to do. I don't recommend it. So how about some statistics and facts? These are always fun. <laughs> so there are eight foods that are responsible for over 90% of all the reported food allergies. Take a guess while I'm talking here. These are things that are going to be common in most people's diets. These are eggs, milk, peanuts, tree nuts, shellfish, soy, wheat, and fish. Those are the big ones. And when you think about it, and again, particularly in the Western diet, these are really common agents in our diet. And this gets down to one of those principles of allergies. You tend to get sensitive to things you get exposed to the most. 
you typically don't get an allergic reaction the first time you're exposed to something. It's usually something you've gotten exposed to over time. So when people say, oh, I just started this new one and I'm reacting, well, that might not be true. And conversely, if they say, well, I've used this for a long time, never had a problem with it, it can't be that. That's definitely not true. It's often those things that you've been using for a while. You've now developed an allergy to it because it's occurred over time. So let's get down to some facts. Now, unfortunately, these are a bit old because this is 2007. There were 13.4 million visits to any kind of doctor's office. That includes emergency departments and everything just for hay fever or allergic rhinitis, nothing else, just for the sneezing kind of allergy that most people associate here. The rate of reported food allergies in kids rose 18% from 1997 to 2007, and that's still going up. And according to the World Health Organization, the estimated number of people worldwide with asthma is about 235 million people. And asthma typically is going to be triggered by allergies. It also, and this is the World Health Organization, lists allergic rhinitis and sinusitis as one of the major chronic respiratory diseases worldwide. So what percentage of adults have allergies in the U.S.? Well, in the latest estimates, about 30%. How about kids? <laughs> Interesting. About 40% of kids are estimated to have allergies in the U.S., about cost. Now again, this is a bit older data, but in 2017, it was $18 billion. That's right, with a B billion. So when you get allergies, your big problem is your parents. <laughs> so the odds that a child with one allergic parent will develop allergies is about 50%. If both parents have allergies, it's 80% or so. So having allergic parents is your ticket to having them yourself. Percentage of people in the U.S. who have a food allergy, estimated 4% of adults and 5% of the children. My personal opinion is those numbers are actually low. I think based on my experience, it's probably a lot higher than that. And percentage of kids in the United States with asthma, 8 0.4%, which is a large number, and adults, 7.6%. So in all these, you're seeing kids have more problems than adults. And that can be due to the way allergies kind of work. Meaning, there is a myth that you grow out of allergies. You don't grow out of allergies. Typically, what will happen is that when you're a kid, you have certain symptoms with your allergies. Let's say you have asthma. Oftentimes, and this typically occurs around puberty or so, those symptoms clear up or go away. And you think, oh, I don't have allergies anymore. Lo and behold, you're in your 20s, now suddenly you've got eczema. Those allergies never went away. They've just kind of gone underground for a while. If you want a really good overview of allergies, just how they work, I mean, it's a non-technical description that just gives you a good idea of kind of the natural history of them. There's a book called An Alternative Approach to Allergies by Randolph and Moss. I recommend you read that if you have an interest in this. So here's the scary statistics. 
In the U.S., in 2017, 3,564 people died from asthma. It doesn't maybe seem a lot in the entire population, but the reality is that all of these are pretty well preventable through allergy therapy. You can look at these statistics. There's a couple places. One is www.healthline.com slash health slash allergy slash statistics. Number one. And the second one is www.webmd.com slash allergies slash allergy statistics. And the other way that you can get allergies, and I mentioned you can get them if your parents have them. These are genetic but you can also get them through the environment. And this is primarily through toxins. Remember, one of the functions of our allergy system is to protect us against these agents. So here's the title of a journal article, The Function of Allergy, Immunological Defense Against Toxins. That was written by M. Profit, P-R-O-F-E-T et al. And it's in the journal Q. Rev Biol, B-I-O-L, and that was in March of 1991, so it's been a while. And I'll go on to read some of this for you. So it says that the immune response system, known as allergy, evolved as a last line of defense against the extensive array of toxic substances that exist in the environment in the form of secondary plant compounds and venoms. So originally this happened because of natural kinds of things. Well, it's gotten much worse since then, of course, because we're producing all kinds of artificial toxins. Whereas non-immunological defenses can only target classes of toxins, the immune system is uniquely capable of fine-tuning required to target selective agents in our environment. So they can go over particular things rather than whole classes. And as they state here, with no uncertainty, toxic substances are commonly allergenic. Think about that. And we're going to get to another one. We'll tell you how big that a problem is. So you can oftentimes get many types of problems, including vomiting and diarrhea, coughing, tearing, sneezing, etc., etc., when the body reacts to these toxic substances. So... That is one journal article. I'm going to go to the next one. And this is in the journal Allergy, Asthma, Immunological Research. It was published in November of 2014. And it states here, Prevalence of asthma and allergic diseases has increased worldwide over the last few decades. Many common environmental factors are associated with this increase. Again, it goes along with the previous article where we started out having to respond to natural toxins. Now we are concerning the impact of environmental toxins that are man-made. Because, as they note here, development of the immune system, particularly during fetal development, has far-reaching consequences for health during not only childhood, but adult life as well. And one underlying mechanism for this increase in allergies is an imbalance in our immune system caused by exposure to these toxins. These can include these endocrine disrupting chemicals, 
which result in drastic changes in different types of chemical productions that our body has, things called cytokines that are part of our inflammation system. As they note here, tobacco smoke is a common risk factor. <laughs> uh, people living in urban areas, close to roads, these have high level of problems. And it goes on to note that during the recent decades, more than 100,000 new chemicals have been used in common consumer products and are released into the environment every day. That's a huge, huge load on our system. I mean, it's just incredible that we're able to even to survive sometimes the way I look at this. The title of that article was The Effects of Environmental Toxins on Allergic Inflammation, published by Yang et al., one of the authors there. So how do you go about testing for allergies? And I'm going to tell you right away, there aren't any really good ways. I'll kind of give you the highlights. One of the problems is that current allergy tends to look almost exclusively at IgE and IgG. And as you saw in the four types of allergic reactions, those aren't the only things involved in allergic reactions. So let's look at some data here. So this research article looked at 7,813 tests and they found that these commercial tests uh, were not good. <laughs> and their conclusion is, it indicates that not all commercial assays for specific IgE provide reproducible and accurate data. Significant potential for mixed diagnosis was detected. So you can't rely, so you see a lot of blood tests out there, you know, RAS, MAST, and so on, saying they can diagnose and they'll treat or test for hundreds of different allergies. Well, they're not accurate title of this was Precision and Accuracy of Commercial Laboratories' Ability to Classify Positive and or Negative Allergen-Specific IgE Results. That was in the Annals of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, published in 2001, Volume 86. So it's 19 years old at this point, and a lot of people rely on these, but they simply aren't very good. Here's another article that looked at what are called prick tests or skin prick tests and patch tests and they were trying to diagnose basic food allergy in kids and these kids were suffering typically from eczema so they already had skin problems and what they found was again particularly with the prick test not very sensitive at all really meaning they couldn't really pick up you know allergies very well it was 45% for eggs, 55% for wheat, 43% for rye, 43% in milk. So basically, if you flip a coin, you're going to get just as accurate uh, information. It's basically kind of guesswork. Now, the patch test was a bit better. I mean, it was about 80%, 90%, 93%. So that one's not too bad. And as they conclude, patch testing or skin patch testing was found to be more sensitive than skin prick testing and diagnosing food allergy with eczema. And they go on to note many children with a negative skin prick test result have a positive patch test result, especially in the case of cereals or grains. 
And that is called, this is again the title of this article, Diagnostic Accuracy of the Atabi Patch Test and the Skin Prick Test for the Diagnosis of Food Allergy in Young Children with Atopic Eczema Dermatitis Syndrome. The journal is Acta Pediatricia, Volume 91, October 2002. I'm going to go over a couple more ways of diagnosis before I make another comment, but remember those numbers that I just described there. So some people will say they can diagnose this through acupuncture testing, meaning they use an electrical device called electrodermal device or electrodermal testing. So this study looked at the accuracy of that. Again, conclusion, under blind testing, this method cannot correctly detect allergies. So if they want to do that little thing where they put a probe on your finger somewhere or something and diagnose allergies, doesn't really work. Title of this one, a double-blind placebo-controlled study on the diagnostic accuracy of an electrodermal test in allergic subjects that was written in Clinical and Experimental Allergy, Volume 32, 2002. There's one other one I'm going to talk about because you might well have heard about it. It's called the COCA pulse test. I could only find one study on this. Interesting thing is here, it could be used to help to determine what was going on. Uh, it seems to vary, they, they, this is the author's words, it seemed to determine that it verified the validity of COCA's claim that in certain patients, foods can act as pulse accelerators and serve as a diagnostic test for food allergies. However, one of the issues they found was that people doing it at home were very inaccurate. They couldn't really get this test down very well and that the only way they could get any kind of accuracy was by having this test done by a medical professional. So, I hate to say it, but most of the people doing it at home is probably not going to be very accurate. <laughs> the title of that article is The Value of the Coca Pulse Acceleration Method in Food Allergy. It was written in the Journal of Allergy, Volume 32, back in 1961, so that's been a while ago. But I'll tell you how you do the Coca Pulse test, just so you can try it. You can play with it here. So you have to do it the first thing in the morning before you eat or drink anything. You also have to be relaxed, not stressed out. You take your pulse for one minute, meaning one full minute. You don't take it for 30 seconds and then multiply by two. You have to sit there for a full minute, accurately count your pulse for that one full minute. Then you put a piece of food in your mouth. You can chew, but you don't swallow it, and you have to taste it for at least 30 seconds. Then take your pulse again for a full minute while the food is still in your mouth. If your pulse rate goes up six or more points, then that's an indication of a stress reaction and that food could be an allergen. If you're going to try another one, you have to spit out the food, rinse your mouth out with filtered water. And you might want to wait a little bit because then you have to retake your pulse and make sure it's back down to normal range again. 
So it's not an easy test to do, apparently. And a lot of people have a lot of difficulty doing it at home. So I don't, unfortunately, really recommend it. In fact, I really don't recommend any of these types of testing. And here's the reason. As we saw, the patch test is probably the most accurate way of doing it. But they only used it in atopic kids, meaning kids with skin problems already, and they only tested foods. Unfortunately, allergists almost never treat foods. They primarily treat inhalants, that is, of things like dust and mold and pollens. They don't treat foods, they don't treat chemicals. The other part is, how do you test for everything? Because in the typical allergy shot, you need to put the antigens of every allergen that you test positive for. There's no way you can test for everything. In fact, there aren't the types of serums that you can use for testing available anymore. There never were where you could test for everything. So it's impossible to test for things. In our next talk, we'll tell how you can get around that problem. And so unfortunately, this means that most of the treatments done by allergists tend to be unsuccessful or at best partially successful because it also involves what are called blocking antibodies, meaning with typical allergy treatment, you don't really get rid of the allergies. You block the allergy reaction by forming something called a blocking antigen. So there's some very big drawbacks in terms of both the diagnosis and treatment with allergies, which on our next podcast, I will explain how to get around that. In the meantime, thanks much for listening. I hope you're able to visit our sites and uh, I look forward to our next meeting together.